verse 1, what a surprising morning for the disciples. They were all caught off guard. And we've been living ever since then talking about this day. Matthew 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, as he said. He has risen. Now, this story... These words this morning are being repeated all over the world. This perhaps is the most, the day in in human existence where more people say the same thing than perhaps any other day on the calendar. That that phrase will be said in uh, Lutheran churches, Methodist churches, Baptist churches, Presbyterian churches, Catholic churches, Assembly of God churches, independent Christian churches. It will be said all over the place today. What won't be said, probably, is... How many of y'all are familiar with this story? Right? That's not going to get said today. No one says, he is risen. Can I introduce a story to you? Maybe you've never heard. Right? The resurrection story. Everyone's heard of it. Can you, can you remember a time when you didn't know about the story? It's very, very, very common. Which perhaps makes it very, very, very dangerous that we're so, so familiar with it. Right, look at this thought from the ESV Study Bible. Great study Bible. If you don't have a study Bible, we have some in the bookstore. It says, the resurrection is not merely a doctrine to be affirmed intellectually. It is the resounding affirmation that Jesus reigns over all. And the power that raised him from the dead is the Christian's power for living the Christian life on earth. And the assurance of eternal life in heaven. That's a great thought. That's a very insightful thought. It's a good compact thought about the resurrection. But I just want to hit two points, and it really flows out of that, that neat package of a quote there. Uh, one, I want to talk about the fact that that would not have described me at an earlier point in my life. Right? At one point in my life, the resurrection would have been of no effect. And I want to also talk about the fact that the resurrection is not simply about delayed effect. It's not simply about what goes on later in life. But let me visit, visit with me first, and maybe you can remember your own story. If this were Easter 1978, I would be seated in a church. I would be attending a resurrection service. However, I would have been seated very, very differently on that morning than the way I was seated here Today, I would have interacted with things very differently. The sun would have risen and the sun would have set with very little noticeable effect on my life. This great story would have been told. I would have heard it. Now, don't get me wrong. uh, I was not in any way antagonistic to the resurrection story. It wasn't like I challenged the historicity of whether or not the event ever even occurred. Or debated the details of how could the stone have been moved. Or, you know, one passage says it this way, another one says it this way. That wasn't me. I wasn't joining the ACLU to protest the fact that schools had Easter celebrations that were about the resurrection. That wasn't me. <clears throat> I was very at peace with the story. Very comfortable with it. So it wasn't that I opposed the story. But I was factually accepting but functionally unaffected. 
Now, this is probably true in many categories, but I don't think there's a more significant category than in this one. Factually accepting. I accepted the facts, but functionally unaffected. The story did not put a dent in who I was. Now, don't get me wrong. Easter morning, there would have been rejoicing for me on Easter morning. I have to admit, though, at that point in my life, most of the rejoicing would have been because Lent was over and I could now go back and have whatever it was that I gave up. I would have been excited about that. I would have watched the Ten Commandments. I would have watched the greatest story ever told. I think Jesus of Nazareth may even have been out uh, at that point. I would have watched those. I would have been curious. I would have been interested in the storyline that was going on. But I would have had no connection between the victory of Jesus Christ over sin and death and my personal pursuits of pleasure and my habits of sin. Right? Does, that, does that run into the categories of your life? Does everybody here know you've got some personal pursuits of pleasure? Right? They're just tailor-made. They're the things that you're into. And, you know, some of them, to use a biblical word, some of them are sinful. They're just They're just wrong. Even if they're not violating the law, which some of us draw our right and wrong references only by what the law requires of us. But the Bible would call them wrong, immoral, against God. And yet, even though I listened to the resurrection story, it would not put any dent in my practices. More than likely, at that season of my life, I would be working on or already participating in some pattern of deceiving my parents. I would have been a teenager in 1978. I would have been a very deceptive teenager. I would have, I would have been... My parents, you know, there wasn't a lot of occasions where, you know, and some stranger showed up at the door. There were some. And they were trying to explain why they were there knocking on the door. And do you have a son? And I don't know. And they're explaining this. And my parents, much to their surprise, and, you know, much to my surprise as well... <laughs> What are they doing here? I don't know who they are. Um, there would have been those issues for my parents to face. But there would have been probably ten times the number of those issues that never came to the door. Because right? I was a good liar. Right? I'm talking about being good. I was a good liar. And so I could, I could lie pretty well. So I would have been in the midst of attending Easter service while there's probably some dual life that I'm leading. While I'm sitting there... Something could find me out that hopefully wouldn't. Sometime during that same week, I probably am going to steal several packs of cigarettes from the local grocery store. Within a month, I'm probably going to approach a stranger on his way into a convenience store, the time saver you guys will remember. And I'm going to ask him if he'll buy a friend of mine and me a six-pack. I'm going to be a child living with his parents, um, sort of removed, unaffectionate, and very disrespectful. And the list could go on and on. I'm going to be living a life that I'm going to sit through an Easter service. I'm going to listen to the resurrection story. I'm not going to oppose it and object to it, but I am not going to be affected by it either. Now, I wonder today, of all the myriad of churches that are gathered this morning that are going to talk about this topic, I wonder how many folks are going to attend those services, resurrection services, songs will be sung, a proclamation of a superhuman event has taken place, and yet there will be many who will be factually accepting. I'm good on, this, on the storyline, but functionally un. Affected. How many will have the sunrise this morning and their secret sins that they're pursuing? The life that they have on the side that no one knows about or they hope most people don't know about. The things that they wouldn't speak of in public. The sun will set on those things and there will be no dent put in them. And there will be no interest on that person's part to change any of that. It won't even dawn on them that that should change. They'll wake up in the morning angry, resentful, and bitter 
at a few people in their lives. And they will go to sleep that same night in exactly the same condition. All the while thinking that they believe in the resurrection. Simply because they do not oppose the story of the resurrection. See, the the resurrection is much bigger than that. For us to hear and consider the story of the resurrection, is to believe it is to have your life wrecked by it. To believe in the person and the work of Christ is to have your life destroyed by it. Philippians chapter 3. I think I put this on the overhead, but you can turn in your own Bible. It's always better to turn in your own Bible than it is to just glance up at that. If you don't have a Bible, though, you can look up there with me. Philippians chapter 3, Paul shares a little bit. The Apostle Paul is going to share a little bit about the passion of his life, what really matters to him. Now, what's important is he's going to frame this section by talking about, before we get to this passage, he's going to talk about his skyrocketing success. You know, back The Apostle Paul was a religious figure and a religious person. But religion and politics had a lot to do with each other back in Paul's day. So he was a political figure as well. He was in a machine. He was moving up in the machine. He was the, uh, he was the Barack Obama who gave the speech at the, the Jewish National Convention and rocked everybody. And they said, that guy right there. Whoo, that guy's going places. And people hitched themselves to the Apostle Paul before he was the Apostle Paul. He was Saul of Tarsus. And off this man was going... And everybody's riding in his coattails and saying great things about him. And opportunities are open and door after door after door is being laid open for this guy. So he's, got his, he's young, he's got his whole life performance, it's very, very promising. Until he encounters Christ. Now what's interesting is, when the Bible talks about Jesus, he made a number of appearances. He appeared in different stages to the disciples. Some just by themselves, some as a couple, some as several have gathered together. Then the 500. And the Apostle Paul says... Lastly, he appeared to me. Now, the Apostle Paul is about to have an interaction with the resurrected Christ. Now, watch what happens to this man as a result. Here's how he sounds now. Verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. See, th- this is just the Apostle Paul living out the parable of the pearl of great price. Remember Jesus told the, pearl of, the story of the pearl of great price? The guy who found the treasure in the field is another parable Jesus told. That once you found this thing, you were willing to part with everything else in your life in order to have it. And the guy who finds it one day just walking across some field, I don't know, maybe he's walking with his staff and he buries it in the ground and thunk, thunk. Goes through the sand, it's just below the surface, and he brushes it all away, and he pulls out this treasure chest hidden in the field. He looks around, nobody sees. He's he's a limitedly honest man. (laughs) Rather than going to find the owner and saying, hey, dude, did you know there's a treasure buried in your field? He decides, you know, if I were the owner, it wouldn't be stealing. I'll buy the field. So he had found a treasure that he knew. Now remember, this treasure is maybe worth millions of dollars, and he owns $20,000 worth of property. Now the, the land value, he can afford that with. If he sells everything, he can have this treasure. And so he does. He takes everything he owns, and he sells it. Why? In order to have the treasure that's in the field. So this is the Apostle Paul. Of all the riches that he had, of all the success that he had, the name that he was building for himself, every bit of reputation, everything that many of us would want in our lives, everything we could build and have and accomplish, he says, I counted all of that as loss 
for the sake of knowing this resurrected one that I met on a road to Damascus. His whole life was turned upside down. Now, listen, I, I want to come back to this in the end because I, I want to say it's more than likely that today there would be some folks here who Christianity is not foreign to them. These stories are not foreign to them. But, but like I was in 1978, you're fairly unaffected by them. And one of the reasons why is because we're not willing to sell everything to have this. I'll come back to that later. But the resurrection, the way the Bible speaks about it, would be the most important event in your past. And a lot of us think that, you know, we live our lives wishing that we had been born into that family, wishing our last name was this, wishing we had the money that these people had, wishing we had the good fortune that somebody else had. Listen, the resurrection is more important than whether you have a different name or not in your past. If you were growing up historically, whether you were born a rich landowner or a slave is not as important as whether or not the resurrection occurred. Whether you have lived your life with wonderful health in your body or you have been disabled most of your life is not as important as whether the resurrection occurred. See, this is a huge Huge, huge event. Now, let me say this, though. The resurrection is not just for later on in life. Right? It's, it is for right now. It is for the way in which we live right now. It frames our thinking. It empowers us a certain way. But many of us have located the resurrection as that thing, that, that, that car we're carrying in our pocket that we're going to play in the last moment there. It's when we die, the resurrection kicks in. And boy, aren't we all glad that when we die... We get to be raised from the dead. So we've assigned the resurrection this place in the timeline at the end of our lives. And, and quite honestly, it does belong there. Not just there, but it does belong there. Right? There, there is an, an epidemic today, quite honestly in our country, of people who don't think about later on. We're not thinking about later on. This probably is the, the generation of all generations that have lived, at least in this country, never thinks about later on. Right? I mean, why are we having the credit crisis that we're having in this country? Because people have already spent their future. I'm not worried about later. I'm worried about right now. I've got to have stuff right now, man. I'm going to borrow against the future. Well, what are you going to do in the future? Well, I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about right now. We have that mindset. We don't save. We don't think about the consequences of our choices. You know, Jeff talked about the biggest loser uh, thing, which I applaud the guys, about 30 guys and gals who have participated in that. But you know what? What, what are you doing when you, when you overeat? Right? You're thinking about taste buds right now. You're not thinking about waistline later. You're thinking about taste buds right now. But there are consequences to taste buds now, theology. Right? It will enlarge your life in ways that you may not like later on. Right? We're not thinking about uh, artery issues and heart disease and diabetes. We're not thinking about those things. But they're real consequences, aren't they? Right? I mean, young people that are here that are, you know, you're not living in an agricultural society. We've got to get up at the crack of dawn and go out and milk cows and chase down animals and work all day long. You know, so you have this thing that you can do like sleeping in and just developing this real casual lifestyle and, and you know not, not being aggressive in the way in which you conduct your lives but later on you pay for that when you train yourself to be lazy throughout your life later on you're going to find you can't escape it even when you want to you're going to find it's got a grip on you that you can't stand see we're not worried about later on though we're worried about right now but later on, it's coming, right? The older we get, the faster it's getting here. I feel it. I worked in the garden yesterday, and it was like, oh, my gosh. What have I done to myself? My legs hurt. My legs hurt when I don't work in the garden. But, but question, have you given sufficient thought for the end of your life? At the end, are you going to die? Have you thought about that? 
I know we're busy, but this would be a good moment. (laughs) Have you thought about that? The Bible says that you and I will render account to God. We will stand before God, the God of the universe. And in that moment, this God who has, you know, is portrayed in the Bible as the creator, the designer, the architect of everything it is. And later he's portrayed as our father. And later he's portrayed also as our judge. He'll be wearing the robes. And all of humanity will be gathered before him. The Bible says we will render an account even for every idle word. We're not just talking big purchases here. We're talking every aspect of our lives that we're deciding on today that we don't have to pay for today. See, in reality, there's some folks here today ought to be awful, awful scared because the sin debt is piling up. And everybody's got to stand before God and render an account. I mean, do we think that way? You know, if you do think that way, it definitely affects decisions that you make today. When you've got to pay later, and you know you've got to pay later, it affects whether or not you're going to spend today. How are thoughts about death affecting the way you are living today? Let's look at these thoughts from the Scriptures. I'll just run through a couple of them quickly. Psalm 39, verse 4, says, Oh, Lord, make me know my end. What is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. I mean, they're worried about, oh, what happened to our 401k? Listen, when you're dead, will it matter? <laughs> oh, I'm worried about right now. I understand that. It's a good American thought. It's not a good biblical thought. Psalm 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of Wisdom. See, these are interesting thoughts because they, they reach into the scope of our life. It's like they take our whole life into perspective here. All the numbers, right? I don't know how many days there are. You know, 260,000. I don't know how many days there are. Not that many. <laughs> and then for you to know, well, what number are you on today? Oh, you're on, check that one off. You know, I pull it off the calendar. You're one step closer to the end. One step closer to the end. Next thing you know, you're going to be there awful quickly. See, the Bible says when you think that way, and the psalmist actually prays for God to bring that kind of insight into his life so that he can get a heart of wisdom. Why? For later on? No, for right now. That I'm going to make wise choices right now. That I'm going to live my life right now informed not just by what happens today, but by what happens at the end of all of my days. Return, O Lord. How long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Job chapter 9 says, My days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They go by like skiffs of reed, like an eagle swooping on the prey. I love the vivid imagery of the Bible. Have you ever seen an eagle swoop on prey? You know, a little salmon fishing in the lake? All of a sudden, I mean, within a couple of seconds, it's all over. Those quiet feather wings just... The Bible says, that was your life. (laughs) That was not an eagle highlight reel. That was your life. That just flashed before you. James chapter 4, verse 13. "Come, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You are a mist. You have all these brief, brief, brief descriptions in the Bible that your life will be over before you know it. And everybody will have the same appointment in that time. Everyone ultimately in that moment is going to have an appointment with death. 
See, here would be the ultimate problem. I don't know everybody here this morning, but here would be the ultimate problem. That without knowing anything about your life, I do know what your ultimate problem is. Death is your ultimate problem. If death was keeping a win-loss record up until 30 A.D., I don't know, death was like 2.76 billion and O. <laughs> had never been defeated until Jesus Christ put his victory into their loss column. And he defeated death. See, this is, this is the ultimate problem facing our lives. An ultimate problem must be met by an ultimate Savior. And there's only one. There's nobody else who defeated death. Right? You, you can go find somebody else who can give you some financial advice and maybe fix your, your books. and that's a, You can go get some counseling in some areas. No one can fix death in your life except the one who defeated death. There's only one. And every one of us has that ultimate problem that we are quickly sliding towards. Now, I, you know, you've got to bring this to our attention because most of us spend most of our days concerned with lesser problems. Right, we've got problems here today. And if I met you in the lobby and I said, hey, how's it going? Are you doing okay? I don't know if anybody here this morning would say, you know, I'm really concerned about uh, that death thing. <laughs> right? We'd talk politics. We'd talk the world of sports. We'd talk about our concern for the Hornets and where they're going to be in the playoffs. At least I'd be talking about that. Um, we'd talk a number of things, but death probably wouldn't be on the list. Because if we live our lives busy and consumed with lesser problems. You know, we talk about the biggest loser competition. We talk about our health. And our, you know, health is an issue. It's a significant issue. I talk about some battle going on in your life with health, some treatment, some diagnosis that's happened in your life that has become front page headlines, capturing your attention. Daily you're thinking about that. Those are problems, but they are lesser problems. We might talk about whatever it is that you've just gotten a good job or you've gotten good at or you're known for, you're famous, you know. Some of us, we just grow up with this trying to escape failure in our life. We're just trying to find what it is that makes me get labeled successful and good in the eyes of people. And whatever that is, whenever you discover it, it's like you want to run towards that and you want to feed everybody it. You want them all to be impressed by that. Right? Well, you know, being good at something, being successful at something, finding something in your life that matters, that's important. But it's a lesser problem. You know, folks who go through... 12-step programs, they've lived through a season of their life where just the dominating issue in their life is a drug or alcohol addiction. And, and like an octopus, it's just reached into every recess of life, just destroying that thing, destroying that thing, destroying that thing. And they live through that season, and they go through a 12-step program perhaps, and they, and they get some help, and that cycle gets broken and begin to emerge and live life differently. And when you talk to them, that's what's going on. And that's a major issue. And I applaud everybody here who's been able to break free of those kinds of patterns in their lives. But you do realize that's a lesser problem. See, lesser problems end up getting lesser saviors. We, we, we invite a different savior into those arenas. And, and sometimes we get very enamored by that stuff, right? You know, I mean, you get somebody who's was really obese, and they lose weight, and you know, you kind of get that Richard Simmons effect, right? You see, Richard Simmons, I'm serious, he was this giant man, he lost all this weight, and now his whole life is about what? Weight loss, right? He's a spokesman for weight loss. You know, Lance uh, Armstrong, he's the biker guy, right? You know, he had, he had a cancer treatment, significant cancer. It's a scary thing, significant thing in his life. Now, this has become an issue for him. It's become a major thing that he's devoted to. Listen, all those things are in our lives. They're, they're part of the human experience, but they're not our ultimate problem. See, I think sometimes the, the saviors in the categories of lesser problems keep us from the savior in ultimate problem. 
Because you know, we look at our life and say, well, this has got to be changed. And this changed me. Let me tell you. You need to go to this. You need to get involved in this. And we're all high on that and we're excited about it. That's great, but it's a lesser problem. Death is our ultimate problem. Now let me expand death here just for a moment. Make it a little more relevant to us. Man's ultimate problem isn't temporary, like our health is, like our successes are. It's not temporary. It's eternal. And it's immediate as well. Death is an issue that's not just going to be around for today. See, your health issue is going to go away because one day you're going to get a body that's going to live forever. Now, you're going to get a body that's going to live forever in the presence of God, or you're going to get a body that's going to live forever away from the presence of God in hell. But whatever ails you today is a temporary situation. That's great news for many of us. There's a lot of things. Everything about our life is temporary. Death sets eternity in our eyes. So there are eternal issues that have to be settled by death. But there is an immediate element of death as well. Because death, when you come and find death in the Bible, it doesn't just mean physically dying. That would be an aspect. Here's a, a good definition from the Dictionary of Theology. It says, physical death generally denotes the irreversible cessation of bodily functions. Spiritual death describes man's natural alienation from God. His lack of responsiveness to God or his hostility to God because of sin. By divine decree, physical and spiritual death is the consequence and penalty of sin. Both are. So there's this sense that we know that physically, when we get a physical representation of this, and much that we see with our physical eyes is intended to teach us something about the spiritual realm. You walk through life and you don't know that, you're missing out on a lot. So we get to this physical view that, you know, this body is winding down, it's going to die. There's There's an element of death that's being taught to us every day as we live. But there's a spiritual element of death as well. Look at these passages in the Bible. Genesis 3, verse 17. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is what God told Adam and Eve when they were placed in the garden. If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good, you are going to die. And that was both spiritual and physical. Because there would come a day when they were going to die physically, but they were going to die on that day spiritually. They were going to experience life now separated from God. This union and and proximity and relationship to God was going to be severed by sin. And not just for Adam and Eve, but for us as well. Romans 5 says, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And the wages of sin is death. So we have this ultimate problem because all of us have sinned. We all are facing a condition of being ultimately dying, but right now being in a condition called death. This passage in Isaiah 59 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. This is almost a where's God kind of a thing. This is a day when people are going, where's God? How come I don't seem like God's for me or with me? Well, it's not that his hand's too short, it can't save or help you, or his ear dull that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. See, the, the Bible, when the Bible handles the word death, it also brings in it this component of separation. Death is about separation. Even when we die physically, the soul separates from the body. There's a separation component that when man dies, he is separated from God. So in the room here today, all of us have sinned and sin causes there to be death and death separates us from God. So there is this sense at some point in our life that we come into the realization that right now, not just later on when I die, but right now I'm dead. Right now. There's a part of me that's dead, even though my blood's pumping in my veins There's brain waves going on, even though that's true. Spiritually, I am dead, the Bible says. Every person at some point in their life 
is spiritually dead, separated from God. And not only does the Bible say that we're dead, but our lives testify that we're dead to God. Dead to God. Look at this thought from J.C. Ryle. He says, so long as a man does not serve God with body, soul, and spirit, he is not really alive. So long as he puts the first things last, and the last first, buries his talent like an unprofitable servant, and brings the Lord no revenue of honor, so long in God's sight he is dead. He is not filling the place in creation for which he was intended. He is not using his powers and faculties as God meant them to be used. The poet's words are strictly true. He only lives who lives to God. And all are dead beside. Now, now look at this list here. This is the true explanation of sin not felt. Sermons not believed. Good advice not followed. The gospel not embraced. The world not forsaken. The cross not taken up. And self-will not mortified. Evil habits not laid aside. The Bible seldom read and the knee never bent in prayer. Why is all this on every side? The answer is simple. Men are dead. See, my problem sitting in a church service, the resurrection service in 1978, was that those were all words that described me. Because what I needed was I needed to overcome death in my life. I was, I was separated from God. And my life looked just like that list. J.C. Ryle's a pastor from the 1800s, writes in a contemporary way. I, I had no sense of sin. I didn't feel that I was sinning. I didn't feel like I needed to make some major adjustments in my life. I wasn't sitting in a church service thinking, I need to come clean. I need to go to my parents and tell them this and this and this is going on in my life. I've been dishonest. I've been deceiving you for years. I didn't feel that. I wasn't believing sermons, heeding good advice. The gospel embraced, not in my life. Now, listen, the gospel wasn't opposed. I didn't stand up and say, I don't believe all that garbage. Keep your religion to yourself, dude. No, no, I was fine. You could tell me about your religion. I could watch the stories. I could watch a movie. I was cool with all that. I was unaffected. Bible reading, prayer, relating to God, having any desire to do that, wanting to shove the world aside to get to God. I didn't want that. A treasure found in the field. I had some treasure, but it wasn't God. A lot of things in my life that were very important to me. A lot of things that if you crossed me the wrong way, you'd find out what was important to me. A lot of things that you owned that were important to me that I would steal. That's how I was. But it wasn't God. See, you know, I look through that list here. I started to say I'm not trying to make anybody uncomfortable. I am trying to make you very uncomfortable right now. Did this list describe you? Because listen, it described me. It absolutely described me. I was not feeling any sense of sin. Sermons didn't affect me. I had somebody the other day, it was a while ago actually, um, talk about having attended the church and, and saying, you know, attended the church for a while and I just didn't get anything out of it. You know, I listened to the sermons. I hope you're not offended, man, but I, listened, I didn't get anything out of it. Listen, you know, that may be how some feel here this morning. Um, you know, we, we, we preach as best we can. We bring the word of God. But whether or not it affects any of us, that's not my doing. And the day it doesn't affect me and I sit and I'm one of those people, and maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, you know, I don't know. I don't read the Bible because, you know, I read it and I don't get anything out of it. It's just a closed book. I mean, it's just, I go to church and, you know, I don't, nothing affects me. Listen. Why is that? Well, thank you, Mr. Rao. The answer is simple. Men are dead. When there's no connection to God, there's no, there's no sense of life. There's no sense of that. That makes sense. That connects with me. That was true for the Apostle Paul. It was true for me. My life was going to be un 
affected by the resurrection story until I actually met Christ. And then I would never sit in a church service the same way again, ever in my life. Very affected. Moved. Compelled. Eager to sell whatever it is so that I could have the treasure that I've discovered that was hidden in the field. I wanted that now. You didn't have to put a gun to my head. You know, I got saved as a teenager. My parents never had to ever tell me to go to church again. Ever. My parents, uh, you know, didn't raise me as a believer. Never stood over me and said, hey, 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 come here. Have you read your Bible today? Huh? Go sit down and read your Bible right now. Don't do anything else until you're done. I never had anybody in my life to do that. But something happened when I met the resurrected one on my road, wherever that was. That all of a sudden, I wanted to know him. I wanted to know him. And I knew the difference because there was a point in my life where I didn't care. And I knew there was something different. Listen, unless somebody overcomes death, and there's only one who can, but unless somebody overcomes death, all of us are bound to a life where we might at best be factually accepting, but functionally unaffected. Now, let me go back to the quote that I started with. This quote from the ESV study Bible. The resurrection is not merely a doctrine to be affirmed intellectually. It is the resounding affirmation that Jesus reigns over all. Now, I mean, before I read the rest of this, I, I, I want to traffic in the person who's here this morning. And you're not saying, hey, Keith, I track, I, you know, I'm tracking with you. I remember the point where I came to a place. I believed, and my whole life did change. Now, this morning, I want to say, okay, how are we doing sitting in a resurrection service, and how affected are we? Have we turned the resurrection into the good news at the end of life's struggle and pilgrimage? That, you know, well, at least I got that going for me. You know, I got this great insurance policy that when I die and kick the bucket and get out of this place, it's been nothing but hell. And when I go, at least I know I'm going to heaven. What about today? What about the resurrection? Not just because it's Easter morning for the believer, but for every day. See, this is what the resurrection is. Where'd my quote go? Don't be messing with me, man. It is the resounding affirmation that Jesus reigns over all. Now, stop. Do you believe that? There was only one opponent that could even give Jesus a decent game. It wasn't sickness. It wasn't, man, I mean, all along the way he's being tested. It's kind of like warm-up games, you know. Got the philosophy of the Pharisees and they're asking tough questions. You know, they didn't believe in, you know, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. Asked a stupid question to Jesus one day. Oh, we got him. Watch this. Oh, so Jesus, uh, you know, in the resurrection there was this guy and he married this woman. And then he died, and then she married her bro- his brother, and then he died, and then she married his brother, and on and on and on and on. It's like seven of them. And so when she dies and she gets to heaven, who's she married to? Pfft, let's see what he does with this one. <laughs> uh, Jesus basically just says, you're stupid and asking the wrong question. That's kind of, if I had my own translation of the Bible, that's how I would have translated that. All along the way, you have Jesus being confronted by people and their philosophies of life, and Jesus overcomes it. You have sickness. People's bodies are broken. Jesus overcomes it. You had demonic influence in people's lives where they're being controlled by spiritual forces. And Jesus overcomes it. And then he surrenders himself into the arms of death itself. And what does he do? He triumphs yet again. Listen, there's not an opponent out there that's got game. There's nobody who can give Jesus a good game. And you and I this morning, we're here concerned about lesser problems and worried, aren't we? Worried? You're worried this morning? It's Resurrection Sunday. If Jesus defeated death, he reigns over all. Listen, there's not a little thing running around out there that's apart from him. 
There's not some part of the universe that's escaped him. It's kind of like, you know what? Hey, Keith, I'm so sorry. Look, that issue's next on my schedule. I just haven't gotten to beating that one yet. When you beat death, you beat the ultimate foe. And he does. It is the resounding affirmation that Jesus reigns over all. And the power that raised him from the dead is, is, currently present, is the Christian's power for living the Christian life on earth and the assurance of eternal life in heaven. It is the power to live the Christian life right here, right now, on earth. Whatever it is I'm struggling with, let's, let's, let's do something against the heroic Hall of Fame sins that we hold up. Like, nobody can get free of this stuff. Know what I'm talking about? Gentlemen? Know what I'm talking about? Hey, sin's a real player. Sin's a real player. But sin's not a real player any greater than death was ever a player. And that that player was defeated by God. And he reigns over it. And the same resurrection, the same resurrection power, the same resurrection power is what is now dwelling in the believer. That's a today issue. See, death sits around and it's, it's making its comments to you. It's doing this psych job on you. Every day of your life, it's messing with your head. Look at this, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. So since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, Jesus coming to be a man, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those, all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Right, see, there's, there's something about living the life that everybody knows this. There's an ultimate problem waiting for us. And you live your life, and all along the way, that thing at the end of your life, it's playing this head game with you. It's whispering at you. Right, you get to a certain age, you know, you think you're invincible at some point until some car crash or something happens. All of a sudden, you know, you just wake up call. But later on in your life, you start, you know, don't ever get into your 40s and buy like a physician's desk reference. And you start opening, you start thinking you've got everything. You know, it's like, I do that. I feel that way. I have that. Oh my gosh. Um, there, see, that, that's death playing a head game with you, right? It's just, it's death. It's standing on your shoulder and it's, it's saying, I'm coming for you. <laughs> Won't be long. <laughs> How are you feeling today? Feeling like dying? That's going to be happening anytime now. It's just kind of playing with your head. But see, but death is not just the thing that happens at the end of our lives. Death is separation from. Death is about loss. Death is about disconnection. And through the fear of death, something gets control of you. I'm afraid of losing that relationship. I'm afraid of not having this. And so see, so death, death sort of puts on some different outfits and comes and visits you sometimes. And it's messing with your head. Listen, if you could trace out those moments in your life where you feel like your stomach has just migrated up into your throat and you are scared. What are you scared of? I'm scared to death. You're really scared of death. You're, you're scared something can take life from you. That's what you're scared of. And every day, death visits you in some way and it puts that into your head. So when you start hearing that, guess what? You start living your life based on that slavery. You start figuring out, what do I have to do today? What do I have to get today? What do I have to protect today? Who do I need to talk nice to today? I'm afraid this is going to happen. And you you live your life controlled by this thing. See, so death's not just waiting to all of a sudden introduce itself to you. It's time. (laughs) He's been playing with your head for years in all kinds of categories of your life. Look look in this passage in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. This is informing. This is, this is in case you didn't read the fine print. And you were dead. Right? Not, you're not going to be dead. Not one day, one day we're all going to be dead. No, the Bible comes in and says, yeah, that's true physically. But right now, you, when you were alive, you were dead. In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. 
following the course of this world. The, the language here, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Or this is like, you know, that bull with a ring through his nose, following the course of this world. How I many of you assume we're just arrogant Americans? We think we're charting our own course. We're blazing pilgrims. Oh, nobody tells me what to do. Somebody's laying the groundwork for you. No matter how impressed you are with yourself, somebody is setting the stepping stones. Because according to the Bible, when you're dead, you are following the course of this world. You're on somebody else's path. Oh, you just think you invented it. See, the reason why you think you invented it is because your feeble eyesight only allows you to see your feet. The Bible also says you're blind as well. So if you could really see and lift up your eyes, you'd see, you know, pathway with, you know, with writing on it. It says idiot on it and stuff like that, you know. <laughs> we just walk along, duh, following the prince of the power of the air. You know, I, mean, I mean, it sounds hooky spooky. You know, we've got a lot of visitors here. But if I were to stand up and tell you, not only are you following the world, but you're following the devil. Oh, I don't know if I believe in the devil. I'm just telling you. The Bible says it. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, what's the problem in this verse? The problem in this verse is that a bunch of people are living aggressively. These are aggressive people. And they live in their life out of a condition of being dead. So the Bible doesn't come along, interesting when you read this passage here and you continue in it, the Bible doesn't come along and tell you to reform your path. It doesn't come along and say, listen, if you want to be a Christian, you've got to get off this path and you've got to start walking on this path. That's what you've got to do. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible comes along and tells you the reason you're walking this path is because you're dead. And the only solution is, is for you to be alive. You're going to have to come to life. Death is going to have to be defeated. And, and there's only one who ever defeated death. And you're going to have to put your faith and your hope in him. Listen, don't, don't leave here today thinking that, man, that dude said some stuff. I was really, really bothered by it. I guess I really need to you know, try to be affected by this and just leave a better, you know, live a better life or something. Uh, no, we live the lives that we live because we're either dead or alive. And if we're dead, we don't need a better life. We need to get a life. <laughs> and then once we have a life, then we'll, we'll lead a different life. Look at one other passage here and we're going to close. Romans chapter 6. You've been in the church here. You know we stole this phrase for the title of the series that we just concluded. Romans 6 verse 4 says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. See, this life we're called to live, this new life that we're going to walk on a different path, it's going to be because of the resurrection. The very same power and resurrection that Christ underwent is the believers, all who have trusted in Christ. And look at the implication of this a few verses later. Therefore... Do not let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Why? Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. That's the resurrection. That's resurrection power. Now listen, one day this body of mine is going to give way and I'm going to receive a new body. It's going to be resurrected. This body will be resurrected. So at the end of my life, the great news is, having trusted Christ, I anticipate that the resurrection that Christ accomplished is going to give me a new life at the end of this life. But according to this passage, the resurrection is not just an event for that day. It's an event for today. 
It's an event for right now. It informs whether or not I am obligated to stay on the path of idiocy for one more step. See, it's like when you're dead, listen, if your condition is dead, no matter where you put your foot, you're on the wrong path. No matter where. Well, I'm coming to church. Well, if you're dead coming to church, because I was, you're still on the wrong path. See, listen, this morning, this is, this is not a message to help you get your life cleaned up, be a better person, come to church more. Thanks for all the neighbors who are here. Y'all come more. Great to have you. Y'all start behaving now. We want to have a good city. That's not the message today. The message today is resurrection is not about self-improvement. Resurrection is about life for those who are dead. I started to title the message that I don't remember what exactly it was, but resurrection is only for the dead. You've already got life. What do you need to be resurrected for? So now here's the trick. If you grew up in a religious world, you've been convinced your whole life you have life. You've always thought you had life. But the Bible doesn't say that. It says I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I needed life. I needed at the end of my life. I need it today in my life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day that we are celebrating today. Thank you for the event known as the resurrection. Thank you for conquering the foe that we never could have defeated. He would have added us to his win-loss column, consuming our lives. Lord, thank you for rescuing us from the mind games of sin that come to plague us every day of our lives as we fear what we might lose and be separated from, as we ponder our health and where that's headed, as we wonder about our finances. Lord, thank you. Thank you for a life that cannot be touched by death, either in this world or the one to come. So, Lord, today we have so much to celebrate. Lord, if it was just that at the end of our days, you will resurrect our bodies and we will not stay in the grave. Lord, that would be great and incredible news, particularly in light of eternity. Lord, how wonderful that even us who can be so temporary-minded have the benefit that your resurrection touches my life right now, today. I just want you to keep your head bowed for a moment. There may be some folks that are here this morning and maybe God's just stirring something in your heart right now. You sense that your life isn't right with God. You sense that you have been a decent person, but you've kind of lived your life trying to fix the lesser problems. That list from Mr. J.C. Ryle about not feeling sin, not changing course and not pursuing the world. Bible reading, getting to know God, hanging out with Him. Those would not be things that describe your life. But yet you know a lot about God. This morning, God, God would not want you merely to know things about Him. God would want to dwell in your heart. He would want to open your life to His presence. He would want to give you life. Jesus came out of the grave, victorious over death, not to stand next to you and tell you how to live, but to come inside of you and live a life in you. This morning, if you're here, And God seems like a bit of a faraway concept. Maybe it's because you're separated from Him. And what you need to do right now, if you don't want that to continue, is is ask God 
for his forgiveness. He died. Just on Friday, celebrate Good Friday where his blood was shed. He took the penalty for your sin. To pronounce to you today, it's all forgiven. I've forgiven it all. Just receive it. Ask God for forgiveness and receive it from him today. Receive it from him. The Bible says he cleanses you of all of your sins. Receive that from him. Thank him for it right now. God, thank you. I need that. Turn to him now and trust. Say, God, here's my life. I don't want to live it my own way anymore. I don't want to follow my own path. I surrender my life to you. And I ask you to give your life to me. Give me your life. Put your spirit in me. Make me come to life. Fill my heart. Make me have new desires toward you. Give me a love for you that runs deep and affects me. I don't want to be disinterested. I don't want to pursue something that's less. I want to find the treasure for which I'm willing to abandon everything to have. Pray and ask God. You tell him that right now. You don't need me to pray that for you. You need to pray that. Pray and ask God to do that right now, this morning, Easter 2009. The very reason why Easter ever existed. So that God could overcome the condition of death that was in our lives. This morning, you can receive his life and no longer be dead. Receive from God this morning. Let's stand up together and we're going to sing.